You're listening to the Sermon Podcast for the Gate Church in Lethbridge, Alberta. For more information, to contact us, or to support this ministry, please visit thegate.org. We're actually going to be continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Luke. Uh, Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus uh, doing a lot of things, um, but I want to highlight one one important thing because it's going to apply for this morning. We, we saw Jesus overcome testing and temptation in the desert. Do we remember that? Temptation and testing in the desert. And, and including the temptation to rule and be given authority over every kingdom on earth if he would only bow down to Satan. So Satan offered, showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, I'll give this to you if you bow down to me. And Jesus said, you shall worship the Lord your God alone, right? So I bring that up because today, as we near the end of chapter 4, we'll be discussing Jesus' true authority as the Son of God and how he uses that authority not to lord over us, but to humbly serve us to set the captives free and to proclaim the kingdom come. So that's what we're going to be learning this morning. So if you want to turn with me now to Luke 4, 31 to 44. Luke 4, 31 to 44, we're going to read that together. It'll be up on the PowerPoint as well. Luke 4, 31 to 44 says this. Then he went down to Capernaum, a town in Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching because his message had authority. In the synagogue, there was a man with an unclean demonic spirit who cried out with a loud voice, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him and said, Be silent and come out of him. And throwing him down before them, the demon came out of him without hurting him at all. Amazement came over them all, and they were saying to one another, What is this message? For he commands the unclean spirits with authority and power, and they come out. And news about him began to go out to every place in the vicinity. After he left the synagogue, he entered Simon's house. Simon's mother-in-law was suffering from a high fever, and they asked him about her. So he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. She got up immediately and began to serve them. When the sun was setting, all those who had anyone sick with various diseases brought them to him, and as he laid his hands on each one of them, he healed them. Also demons were coming out of many, shouting and saying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak, because they knew he was the Messiah. And when it was day, he went out and made his way to a deserted place. But the crowds were searching for him. They came to him and tried to keep him from leaving them, but he said to them, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. All right, there's a lot going on there, but we'll start from the beginning. So after being rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, Jesus makes his way back to Capernaum, 
which actually becomes the centralized location for the rest of his ministry going forward. He always kind of comes back there and then leaves and comes back and leaves. That's kind of his centralized location. And it's worth noting as well that this is also the childhood home of some of the men who would become his disciples, Simon Peter and the brothers James and John, most notably. And historically speaking, I've also read that this happens to be the main headquarters of the Pharisees at the time. And the Pharisees, if you don't know, they're primarily the the teachers of the scripture and of the law, which to them are really one and the same. The scriptures and the law are analogous, right? They're, They're pretty much the same thing to them. So the Pharisees are there. Some of his disciples are there. It's a centralized location of his ministry. That's Capernaum. And so, yes, Jesus' ministry is centralized in the same area of the Pharisees. You'd think he'd want to stay away from them because of all the trouble they give him, but no, this is no accident, as we'll see throughout the series in Luke. This is on purpose. Anyways, speaking of the Pharisees and and teachers of the law, one of of the questions they'll, they'll constantly wrestle with when it comes to Jesus is, where does his authority come from? They're constantly wondering and asking this. Where does his authority come from? In other words, Jesus' power and authority become so obvious to everyone, not just to the uneducated or gullible like all the anti-religious zealots today would have you think, but that it also becomes visibly apparent to the respected and, and, and even most educated of all God's people, many of whom would rather not admit it. Jesus' authority even becomes apparent to others as well, including a Roman centurion who was assigned to Capernaum and and who actually helped build the local synagogue, uh, as it says later in Luke. And and so, yeah, this is someone we'll run into later. But really quickly, this centurion... He must have heard about Jesus and, and, and what he did in the passage we just read. And so one day, maybe a week or two later, he comes to Jesus and, and, he's, and he asks him to heal one of his servants who'd become paralyzed. And, and so Jesus asks him if he should come to his house to heal him. And the centurion responds, as it says in Matthew 8, 8 to 9, he says, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but just Say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, too, am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say this to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And Jesus responds to this by saying that he's never seen anyone else with such faith in all of Israel, and then he heals his servant by just saying the word. And we're going to go into that story in depth later on through the series, but, but right off the bat, I just want to mention that we can see that the centurion understands Jesus' authority better than anyone else. He acknowledges that, like a, like a good Roman soldier under his command, that, that a good Roman soldier will obey him at his word because that centurion speaks actually on behalf of Rome. And in the same way, anything or anyone under Jesus' authority will also instantly obey. He only has to say the word, which is basically the, the definition of authority, 
right? Having the right and, and the power to give orders, to make decisions, and enforce obedience. So the centurion seems to understand and believe this by faith, that Jesus not only has authority, but that it's all-encompassing, and that therefore in the same way that his own authority comes from the authority of Rome, Jesus most certainly acts on behalf of God the Father. This is something Jesus would later teach his disciples when he says in Luke 10, 22, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. This is where his authority comes from. This is also something Jesus begins to display for us in the passage we read this morning. We find him, as we so often do, teaching in the synagogue on a Sabbath. And for those who who are interested, I I have a picture of the ruins of of what was most likely the synagogue in Capernaum. It's not a very high-definition picture. I apologize. Um, But there it is there. That is the synagogue that they've uncovered in the town of Capernaum. And um, with the help of the centurion's funding and because of the population of the Pharisees in the area, this synagogue was probably one of the biggest in, in Galilee. I also have an artist's rendering of what it probably looked like, um, not in ruins. So, pretty neat. Uh, I, to me, it's, it's cool to see a picture of, of where Jesus may have actually sat and taught, and I'd love to actually see it in person one day. That would be pretty awesome. Anyways, as he begins to teach the word of God, everyone listening to him is, is struck and, and amazed by the authority with which he teaches it. And remember, this is the headquarters of the Pharisees themselves, the ones who are most knowledgeable and zealous for the word of God. And yet, these people have never heard anyone teach the truth of Scripture like Jesus did. And this doesn't necessarily mean he was an amazing public speaker. He He very well may have been. We don't know. But what this most likely means, though, is that Jesus, the word made flesh... And in the power of the Holy Spirit, brought a truth, knowledge, and interpretation to the text in a way they'd never known before, never experienced before. It means he he didn't teach it like their scribes would, or maybe how I would, backing things up with quotes from smarter people than me and and things like that, right? And instead, he, he taught it like he alone had the right to teach it, because he alone did. It's about him after all. As uh, Tabidi Anyabwili writes, this is certainly, uh, sorry, there is certainty and confidence in his message. Our Lord taught the Old Testament like it, it was his autobiography. There is power in his words, so much so that, that outwardly religious people are amazed. And do you know how hard it is to amaze outwardly religious people? They have heard and seen it all. But as Jesus thunders in preaching, their hearts respond. They had never seen or heard a teacher like Jesus with such authority in his teaching. But not only did did he impress and amaze the people listening to him, it seems like he also made a a pretty uh, good impression on a demon who'd possessed a man and had been chilling in the synagogue as well. 
And, and we can only guess as, as to the, the reasoning this, this demon was there, but we can assume it was probably to take any and every opportunity to oppose the word of God in that place, which is what demons do, and which is also why we should make sure that we're ever vigilant and aware that we're most likely to find them and their influence in the world, not only in dark alleyways and seances, as Hollywood movies like to suggest, but more often than not, with, even within our churches and other spaces where God's at work, because that's their entire mission, is to resist the work of God, right? To distract us, to, to keep us from focusing and living out the mission of God. So we should be ever vigilant. But not afraid, right? Because when Jesus shows up, um, this is what happens. The demon recognizes him immediately and screams. Luke, from Luke 4, uh, 34, it says, Leave us alone. What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus instantly silences him, and he casts, uh, out of, casts him out of the man he's possessed, freeing the man without any harm, and again, the crowd is amazed. Not only does Jesus have authority over the word of God, he's just displayed that he has authority over demons as well. And that these demons know exactly who he is as the son of God, and they fear him. As it says in James 2.19, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. And so here we see a demonstration which reminds us that while evil exists, it's ultimately powerless against Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus actually renders them completely useless at the cross. Colossians 2.15 tells us that in this way he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. So that's why we don't need to be afraid. We need to be ever vigilant but not afraid, because Jesus has defeated them. Jesus has power over them and authority over them. All right, so then after all this excitement and demonstration of his authority, he heads over to Simon Peter's house, where he's informed that Simon's, Simon Peter's mother-in-law has a high fever. It's no surprise that with Luke being a doctor, this is the only gospel that doesn't just say fever, but actually says high fever, so as a doctor, he's, he's emphasizing that this, this wasn't just a headache or something like that, but, but something serious and possibly deadly in those days. And so they, so they ask Jesus about it, and with compassion, he stands over her, rebukes the fever, and it instantly goes away. Demonstrating that he not only has authority over the word and over demons, but now also over disease. It's at this point that word about him starts spreading and people from all over town come to him to get demons cast out and diseases healed, which he patiently and compassionately does for each and every one of them, uh, probably lasting all night. And then the next day, he's probably exhausted. But yet, I think Jesus does something surprising here for us. As humans, he does something surprising. Instead of using this, this moment of, of hype and notoriety for his own benefit or, or to make a name for himself, 
like most and many rulers, celebrities, and celebrity pastors or so-called celebrity healers have done and still do. Instead, he attempts to go to a desolate place to be alone. Probably to pray and be strengthened in the presence of God. So when the crowd finds him and tries to convince him to stay, he tells them this. Luke 4, 43 to 44. But he said to them, it is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to the other towns also because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. And so from, from Jesus' actions and, and answer to them here in this last part, I think we can, we can learn a few things about what's going on. Uh, three specific things that I want to highlight today. Number one, first of all, is that Jesus' display of authority through, through teaching and through miracles is primarily meant for one purpose. And he defines it for us at the end of the passage. What's the one purpose? There's supposed to be a tangible proclamation of the good news of the kingdom of God. That's why he's come. Daryl Bach writes, the miracles pull back a curtain, as it were, so we can glimpse the behind-the-scenes battle within creation. Jesus tackles demons and disease to show he possesses the key to life. Jesus' authority shows the presence and concern of the rule of God on behalf of those who turn to God in a time of need. So while he, he brings physical healings and he casts out demons, ultimately, this is meant to point us to a deeper reality that he's the son of God who's come to bring salvation from sin and death to give us life in the kingdom of God. That's the first thing we can learn. Second of all, is that the good news of the kingdom of God is meant for many. Not just for one town or one people, but for any and all who believe in his name by faith. Which is why Jesus says he can't just stay in Capernaum, but he has to go to many places. He has to preach the kingdom of God everywhere he can. And then he would later task his disciples and the power of his authority to do the same. to make disciples of all nations. So that's the second thing we can learn. And the third thing that we can learn is that while Jesus has been given all authority from God, he has chosen to to use that authority not, not to lord over us, which he could do by all rights. He's the son of God. He, he could force us to bow down to him if he wanted right now. But he doesn't. Rather, he uses his authority and eventually sets it aside to humbly serve us and set us free. To free us from the darkness of this world and and into the light of truth. To free us from our spiritual captivity and our bondage to sin and to bring healing, not only physically, but more importantly to our souls by laying down his life and setting his authority aside to the point of dying on a cross. By his stripes, we are healed. So in a world 
where those in authority, more often than not, we, we see it all the time, when those in authority, more often than not, use and abuse power to make themselves more powerful and more wealthy as a means to manipulate people for personal gain, to abuse and coerce, to treat people like they exist only to serve them. It's Jesus who turns that pyramid upside down, who displays for us that while he actually, by right, has all authority in heaven and earth, he chooses instead to serve us and lay down his life for us. This is incredible. Luke 22, 25 to 26. Jesus declared, the kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in authority over them call themselves benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And Matthew 20, 28 also adds Jesus is saying, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So we see that this is what's happening in in, in this passage. By rights, Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, could recline at the table and force us to serve him. But instead, he gets on his knees and washes our feet. Instead of coercing us or, or, or using us to do his every whim, he blesses us. He has such love and selfless compassion that that he chooses to take that which has already enslaved us, our sin and death, and he takes that upon himself at the cross. Philippians 2, 5-11 says this, Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. And for this reason, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So again, Jesus comes and he he turns the, the, the idea of authority upside down and shows us that while his godly authority is all encompassing as the Son of God, it's not authoritative. It's selfless, and it's giving. It's grace, and it's mercy. He shows us that true authority means laying down your life for those you love. And again, he's also shown us the truth through his testing in the desert and and through his death on the cross that he's not interested in glorifying himself. 
but that he's, he's set on bringing glory to God alone through saving and redeeming his people. And so in, in my opinion, as we discover Jesus' compassion, as we see his servant's heart, as we experience his unconditional love, this makes him the only authority figure worthy of fully surrendering and bowing down to. He alone is worthy and trustworthy of our lives and our souls. Just look at the cross. Just look at the cross. It's for this very reason that God bestowed upon him the name above every name and gave him all authority in heaven and earth and under the earth. It's the same reason that demons recognize him as the son of God and shudder with fear. It's the same reason that when Simon Peter's mother is healed, her immediate response is to serve Jesus and everyone else there in return. It's the same reason the centurion knows Jesus can and will heal his servant with a very word. And for us, what, what, what it ultimately comes down to is how are we going to respond to his authority day in and day out? How do we respond to Jesus as Lord in our lives? And make no mistake, our decisions won't change the reality of his authority. You can try to deny it all you want. He has it. Everyone on that day recognized it. Even people that didn't want to, even the Pharisees, even the demons. And one day, every knee will bow down to it. Whether you want to or not, every knee will bow down to it. But today we are given the means to, to acknowledge his authority in our lives with faith. And so will we? Or do we? When we take a look at our lives, do we actually acknowledge him as Lord of our lives? Because we can't simply be amazed like the crowds. We can't simply acknowledge him as the Son of God, like the demons do. Our response has to be deeper than that. It gets to be deeper than that. As the song proclaims, Jesus paid it all, so all to him I owe. In other words, he gave his life for me, and so I can give him nothing less than mine. This has to be the response. To love because he first loved us. And again, he's, he's shown us and proved to us that he's a king who serves us, who lays down his life for us. A king, therefore, that we can trust with every facet of our lives. A king that we can hope in a king we can place our faith in, a king we can abide in and follow, a king who has our best interest at heart. And Jesus tells us in Matthew 10, 32, that whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. 
And again, this doesn't mean just acknowledging him as the demons did, who recognized him as the son of God. This means acknowledging his authority over us by surrendering to him as Lord with everything we are and the way that we live. It means entrusting him as our righteousness and giving our whole lives to him, our whole lives to him, our anxieties, our obedience, our fears, our diseases, our struggles and temptations, our burdens, our desires, our dreams, our gifts, our words, our faith, and especially our sins, all that we are, knowing that, that as, as we submit to him, he'll serve us, he'll save us, he'll be there for us, and he'll lift us up. As the word says, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This has to be the response. He humbled himself for us. And so let's humble ourselves before him. Let's willingly place ourselves under his authority that he might fight for us and free us to truly live. Jesus is worthy of this. Mm-hmm.